All right, I also want to say good morning to everyone. Thank you so much for taking your Saturday morning and coming to study this very important topic. I want to go ahead and get right into it. Some of you were not here last night, and so I want to briefly review uh, some of what we talked about last night, which was uh, biblical claims for inspiration. You'll notice from the title that what we talked about last night were biblical claims for inspiration. We were not looking at evidences for inspiration, but what is it that the Bible says about itself? And there are some amazing passages that we Try it now. Okay. Yay. Okay. Looking at a passage in 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 is a very interesting verse in which the verse says that all Scripture is inspired of God. That particular claim is one where God is exerting a supernatural influence over the writer so that what is written is exactly what God wanted. That's the claim of 2 Timothy 3.16. And when we look at the, the Greek phrase that's there in the bottom right, pasagraphe theonustos, is the all scripture is God breathed. All scripture is inspired. And so it's making a blanket statement about all of scripture. And that's an important thing to note. But one of the points that we made last night that we'll emphasize again right now is that that word in the middle, the word graphe, occurs about 50 times in the Greek New Testament, and it means that which is written down. And so it's not just the idea that God has spoken, which we'll talk about in a minute, but the fact that God had what He wanted to communicate written down, and that all of the Scripture, all of this holy writ, holy writing, is that which finds its origin in God Himself through man, and here we are. So that's what we learned last night in thinking about the first step of how we got the Bible. We also looked at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, that talked about how God is one who has not been silent. He has spoken. He spoke to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways, and in these last days He has spoken to us, in His Son. And so God is one that has communicated to us His Word. Now while that, why that is so important is because the Bible claims to be from God. As a matter of fact, did you know that literally, literally thousands of times in the Bible, it's claiming to be from God. You've got, thus says the word of the Lord, or the word of the Lord came to, or God said, God commanded, uh, God directed, or hear the word of the Lord. You've got phrase after phrase after phrase in which the Bible is claiming to not be the product of man, but to be the product of God. That's a claim. And I also made this point last night. You don't have to believe that. God gives you the right to reject categorically that claim. But what you can't deny is that the Bible is not making the claim. You can say, I don't believe it, 
But you cannot deny that the Bible is saying it's from God. Over and over again, it's making that claim. All right, so now we want to move on and talk about the canon of Scripture. What on earth uh, does this mean? The canon of Scripture is addressing the following questions. What books belong in the Bible? What we know is this. We've got 66 books in the Bible, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament books written by approximately 40 men over a span of about 14, 1500 years. All right, how did their writings make it into this book when there were literally hundreds, thousands of other writings that were done? How did these books uh, get in? How do we know about these books? How do we know whether they were legitimate or not? Who decided? And when did they decide that these books were going to become a part of uh, the canon of Scripture? And can we know that we have the right ones? All right, those are the questions that we're going to look at in this session. First of all, let's talk about the word canon. It is not something that fires bombs. It is uh, actually a Greek word. Kanon is how you would say that word in Greek. And it is a word that translated just means a rule or a standard. So at times during history, various books have been questioned as a whether, whether or not they measured up to this divine standard, this rule. And then the question is logically asked, and it should be, how do we know or what evidence do we have that these books are really the inspired books? These are the right books because we know that God spoke. We know that God worked through prophets. How do we know that what we have is what it is that really genuine reflects the work of God? Here is what is being taught in our colleges and seminaries. Something like this. Let's suppose that we are one of these church councils. And what our assignment is, is we have been given three books. And we've been given the the book of Exodus the book of Tobit, and the book of Esther. And our assignment is to go home, study these books over the next week, and then next Saturday morning we'll come back together again and we'll vote. All right, so now it's the next week. We've had all week. We've read these books. And so the moderator says, all right, everybody knows what we were supposed to do. And so now it's time for us to take a vote. How many believe that the book of Esther should be in the canon of Scripture? And then we've got people posted around and they're going to count to make sure we get this accurately. All right. Well, it looks real good for Exodus. Exodus is now in. All right. So let's talk about the book of Tobit. All right. Those of you that think Tobit should be in Scripture. All right. Tobit's Tobit's not looking real good. All right. Well, okay. Uh, so Tobit's not, not going to make it in. All right, how about the, the book of Esther? Oh, this is going to be a close one. This is going to be close. Looks like uh, Esther's in by the narrowest of margins, but it's in. This is what my professors taught me when I was in graduate school. This is what men who teach in denominational schools say how the Bible books became Bible books. 
They were voted in. And there were agendas, there were political inner workings that all were taking place. That we had people, these subgroups that were campaigning for various groups, buying vote. I mean, it sounds like the, a modern political nightmare. And all of this does is it makes us question the validity of the Bible books. Makes us say, you know, I'm really not sure that that book even belongs in there at all. And all Satan needs to do is put a little crack in that wall. A little bit of doubt. And then once that doubt is established, it grows bigger and bigger And ultimately, the Bible is going to be one that is discarded altogether. This is the cover of a book I have in my library. Mike might have this in his library as well. I remember the very first time I saw this uh, book over 20 years ago. I thought, wow, how about that? Uh, Lost Books of the Bible. There are many people that claim exactly what this book is claiming. That there are a number of books that were lost to mankind that belong in the Bible. I mean, look at the title. They're lost books of the Bible. And so when you take this book, you read, and I remember uh, people asking me, isn't there some ancient stories that talk about Jesus as a child? I mean, in our Bible, we have when he was 12 years old, but outside of that, well, that's a part of the book's that are in a book like this, The Lost Books of the Bible. And it tells uh, stories, supposed actual events of what happened with Jesus when he was a child. All right, so we've got these attacks on the Bible, on the books that we have in the Bible. Now, I don't know if you read uh, uh, the newspaper and nationally syndicated columnists. Um, this is one by one particular woman by the name of Bonnie Urbay. And I uh, had read Bonnie's column for years. She was a very anti-religion, anti-Christianity person. And so when this particular article was published, True Bible History Might Open, the, open Eyes, I thought, don't tell me that Bonnie has finally come around. So anyway, I know you can't read that, and probably the part that's dark, you can't read that either. Maybe you can, but this is the part that uh, I want us to look at. This is what she says, looking at the dark part of the screen. As a product of a New York City private progressive school, I have spent much of my adult life making up for my lack of knowledge of biblical history. As a result, whenever I have a free moment, I tear into the closest scholarly tome, teaching myself about the history of the Bible, how it was written, by whom it was written, and how it came to us today in what we all know as the King James Version. What I have learned is fascinating and central to my understanding of Western civilization and its ethical and religious underpinnings. For example... Biblical scholars now agree almost to a person that the Gospels were not written by their apparent authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
Now, I was reading this while I was eating breakfast, and I choked on my donut about then. But she's not done. In fact, scholarly research shows that they were written by, get this, committees of authors, and that they were not written until decades, if not a century or more, after Jesus' disciples died. Imagine, if someone died in 1950 and nothing was written down about his or her life until 1990, how chock full of inaccuracies would the account of that person's life be? Such historical criticism of the Bible tells us that the gospel should be read more like an historical novel than as history itself. And yet, many Americans are woefully ignorant of this information. The Bible itself was not compiled as one book until the late 4th century. Its creation was spurred by the Roman Emperor Constantine, who converted the Roman Empire from paganism to Christianity. Gospels by other disciples that were circulating at the time were eliminated from the formal version of the Bible because they contradicted what had become by then official church doctrine. Again, most modern-day Christians assume the Bible is something that appeared magically in its present form right after Jesus Christ died. Not so. Now, even though this article is somewhat dated, the information in the article is most certainly not. This is still the, the status quo doctrine about the Bible. And when I read this, I'm thinking... You want to talk about something that's chock full of inaccuracies. How about this article? There was so much wrong in this article, but yet this is what people believe. This is a nationally syndicated article that someone's going to read and they're going to go, wow, I didn't know that about the Bible and she even challenges you. I'll bet you didn't even know this. Most Christians don't. They think it's something that magically appeared and like we're a bunch of mindless fools. What is the evidence that we have, and especially we're, we're going to look at some other parts of this in the next couple of sessions, but she specifically attacks this idea of canonicity. Who wrote these books? How did these books get in? Now, she is suggesting, no, she's saying that most scholars agree, all scholars now acknowledge that these books were not written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, but they were written by committees and written long after the supposed time. Well, that's the challenge that we're facing when we're talking about this idea about the canon of Scripture. All right, so what is it that the Bible has to say about how Bible books became a part of the canon? All right, I hope you've got your Bibles with you want to look at some passages that you probably have never thought of in the context in which we're about to look at them, but today uh, we will. Let's begin by looking at Exodus chapter 24.
want to read verses 4 through 7, Exodus 24, verses 4 through 7. All right. <clears throat> and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. All right, a couple of things that we want to notice, first of all, about this text. Moses was a writer. The Bible claims that Moses did writing. Then it also says that what Moses wrote down were the words of the Lord. All right, that fits in with what we talked about last night. The biblical claim for inspiration. Yes, Moses was the man that wrote, but God was the author of what he wrote. This is what's called inspiration. God inspired Moses to write down the words of the Lord. Now notice the reaction of the people in verse 7. When Moses read to them what he had written, this book of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people, they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. All right, so we notice here a very important truth. Moses wrote, Moses wrote it down, but the people knew that it was from God. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All right, go over a few books to Deuteronomy 31. We'll read verses 24 through 26. What did I do with that water? Verse 24. And it came about when Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book till they were complete that Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord saying, Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God that it may remain there as a witness against you. Alright, so as we look at this particular verse, again, it acknowledges that Moses wrote. As a matter of fact, now it says he finished writing the words of this law and it became a book and that they were complete. And then Moses tells the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord saying, take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. All right, so Moses did a lot of writing. And then he takes this writing and he gives it to these Levitical priests and they place it beside the Ark of the Covenant. 
Why would those Levites do that? The Ark of the Covenant is their most holy object. And for Moses to think for one minute that he can write some stuff and it be put in the vicinity of their most holy object, who does he think he is? But here's the lesson. The people knew Moses. The people knew that God spoke through Moses. They witnessed the power of God through Moses. They saw how Moses was one that confronted the most powerful man in the world, the Pharaoh of Egypt. And how through Moses the ten plagues occurred on the Egyptians. They were the ones that saw Moses as they were standing there kind of trapped. You had the Egyptian army coming and you had mountains on one side and you had the Red Sea in front of them. They was, looked like they were going to die right there and Moses standing there looking like Charlton Heston. Now the younger people are going, who is Charlton Heston? He's saying, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord and the waters of the Red Sea part. And the Israelites are able to walk through on dry ground to safety on the other side. That's the guy. That's Moses. That's the one that did all this for them. And so when Moses is writing, it's a no-brainer that they're going to accept what he wrote. They saw how God worked through them. And so you say, how did Genesis become a part of the Bible, the part of the biblical canon? Well, because it was written by a recognized prophet of God. Same with Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So now we have five books that are already a part of this Old Testament canon. And you know what we haven't had yet? Not a single council not a single vote. No one has said yes or no. Those books, I hate to say automatically, but you get what I'm saying, almost automatically became part because it was accepted by the people of God because it was written by someone that they knew was a man of God, was a prophet of God. The people in later generations had no trouble accepting this there were no challenges to the authenticity and authority of the books of Moses it was accepted during the time of Joshua it was accepted during the time of David in first Kings 2 and verse 3 be strong and walk in his ways it's God's ways keep his decrees his commands his laws and requirements as written in the law of Moses all right so they're God's laws God's decrees God's commands, God's requirements, but Moses was the one that wrote them all down. Well, that's what people believed, and this is during the the time of David and Solomon, which is about 1,000. Moses has been dead for 400 years now. The book of the law was accepted during the time of Josiah, Daniel, Ezra, and even during the days of Jesus And so it was something that was accepted without question through the centuries well after the time that Moses lived. So that explains how the first five books became 
a part of the Bible. What about that next section? And we talked about this last night. For those of you that weren't here, the Old Testament is divided into three uh, parts. The law, the prophets, and the writings. Jesus uh, referred to the Old Testament in this way in Luke 24, uh, 44 and following. So what about that middle section, the prophetic books? If you're following me so far, you're already going to know how I'm going to say. And that is... These books became a part of the Bible when recognized prophets wrote. Like Joshua, like Samuel, like Isaiah, like Jeremiah. These were men that were recognized by the people of God as being prophets of God. All right, what evidence do we have to support that? All right, we've already looked at those two. So now let's turn to Joshua 24 and verse 46. And again, this is one of those passages that probably as we've read through this book, we really didn't give it much thought. Joshua 24, verse 26. It says, And Joshua wrote these words, in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it, up, set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Okay, again, let's make some observations about this verse. First of all, Joshua wrote. Okay, so the Bible is acknowledging a simple fact that he was in fact someone that wrote. But did you notice where this verse is saying that Joshua wrote? He wrote what he wrote in the book of the law. Does that terminology sound familiar? Well, that was exactly the terminology in Deuteronomy 31, where Moses wrote his words of the law in a book until they were complete. And so now Joshua is adding his writings to the writings of Moses. Who does he think he is? How does he think he can get away with this? Because the people knew Joshua. Joshua was the guy that led them right up to the Jordan River. And when the feet of the priest touched the river, it was dammed up at a place called Adam, and the river flowed on down into the Sea of Gal into the Dead Sea, and they were able to walk across on dry ground. Joshua was the one that led them through that. Joshua was the one that had them circle the city of Jericho. And with the shout and the trumpets, the walls fell down and they easily captured the heavily fortified city of Jericho. That was Joshua's leadership. And as they systematically moved through the promised land, it was Joshua and his leadership. The point is this. The reason why people would accept what Joshua wrote is because the people knew Joshua. They saw God work through Joshua. And so there was no problem whatsoever accepting what Joshua wrote. And so now we've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. So our Old Testament canon is growing. We now have six books. And guess what we haven't had yet? A vote. <laughs> A council that got together and said, all right, what about this book of Joshua? It already was in. Look at another passage. Turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 10. 
verse 25. 1 Samuel 10, 25. Then Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom and wrote them in the book and placed it before the Lord. All right. Once again, let's make some observations about this. Samuel was a writer. And this text says that Samuel took what he wrote and he put them in the book and placed it before the Lord. What is the book? Well, I think you're running ahead of me on that. You already know that it's the the book that was originated by Moses that was added to by Joshua. And now Samuel is being said to be adding his writings to that book. But you know what? This also has another phrase. It says he placed it before the Lord. Now on the screen there, on the bottom left, you've got one artist's uh, rendition of the Ark of the Covenant. With the, uh, uh, the cherubim, with the, the wings touching, this was... Uh, portrayed in the Old Testament as the seed of God, the presence of God was found. This particular holy object was placed in a particular room. You remember what the name of that was? You have the tabernacle that was divided into two rooms. You had the holy place, right? And then you had the most holy place or the holy of holies. It was in that room that the Ark of the Covenant was placed. All right, so now Samuel is taking what he has written and he has placed it, here's that terminology that means the most holy place before the Lord. Who does Samuel think he is? How does he think he can get away with this? Now you already know by now the answer to this. The people knew Samuel, right? The people saw how God worked through Samuel and Samuel was unquestionably a prophet of God and one that had led the people and one that was significant in military victories. They knew Samuel. There was no problem, no question whatsoever that what Samuel wrote, it could be added to the writings of other recognized men like Moses, like Joshua. So our Old Testament is growing uh, as we continue to look at these verses. I don't have this one on the screen, but... While we're on a roll here, turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. And verse 29. 1 Chronicles 29, 29. Ida says, Now the acts of King David from first to last are written in the Chronicles of Samuel. Does your Bible say something about Samuel? The seer. Does it, you see that? You see the seer? <laughs> what does that mean? The seer is a word that is describes someone that has been given revelations from God. All right, so Samuel the seer in the Chronicles of Nathan the prophet... And in the Chronicles of Gad, the seer. All right, so this verse is telling us that the book of Chronicles is that which was written by 
these men, all of which were recognized as prophets or seers of God. That's why the book of Chronicles, for example, was accepted into the biblical canon because the people knew, recognized those uh, who wrote these books. But I think this is my favorite. Daniel chapter 9. So please turn to that. Daniel chapter 9. All right, a, a bit of history. Daniel was taken in the first of three deportations from Judah to Babylon. He is in the king's court. Ezekiel is one that was taken in the second deportation. He's with the people. Jeremiah was one that had told the people to give up and surrender to the Babylonians. And uh, King Nebuchadnezzar knew that Jeremiah had encouraged the people to give up. They didn't. but uh, So he offered Jeremiah... Uh, an option of coming to Babylon with the other Jewish exiles in that third deportation or to stay in the land uh, of Judah. Well, Jeremiah chose to stay in the land. All right. Seventy years had passed. And that's what God had said was going to be the length of time that they were going to be in Babylonian captivity. 70 years. That's Jeremiah chapter 25 and verse 11. So Daniel has been counting. And he knows it's now been 70 years. And so Daniel chapter 9 is where Daniel is praying to God. You said that we would only be here 70 years. It's now 70 years. So please God, Daniel's praying, please God, Fulfill your word and let the people return to the land of Judah uh, as you promised. Now, let's look at the verse though. Daniel 9 verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem Namely, 70 years. All right, so again, we need to kind of break this verse up into parts and isolate some important things that are being said. First of all, he's saying that he observed in the books, plural. Why would he call the book of Jeremiah books, plural? Because Jeremiah was a part of a larger collection of books which we have referred to as the prophetic writings. All right, so by this time, there would have been a number of other prophetic books that had been written, like what? Like Isaiah, like Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. They would already have been written uh, by this time. All right, so Daniel has in his collection... Books, of which Jeremiah's book is one of them. Notice also that it was revealed as the word of the Lord. 
All right, so he's reading a book, but he understands that that book is the word of the Lord. All right, and that book was written by Jeremiah. Why would they accept something written by Jeremiah? All right, I'm sounding like a broken record. I know I am. But because the people knew Jeremiah, the people saw God work through Jeremiah, they saw Jeremiah's prophecies coming true. They knew he was a man of God. They accepted what he wrote as being from God. And so it was the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet. And then it's 70 years. And that's why Daniel's praying. Here is what makes this, in my mind, even more amazing. What I've been taught, and every book that I've read that's written by liberal theologians on biblical origins, they say almost puppeting uh, each other is that the canon of Scripture went through a long, and they'll use this phrase, evolutionary process that you had a book and that book kind of went through some revisions and that book uh, you know gained popularity and lost popularity and then finally you had some councils that got together and the votes were made like we talked about a minute ago a long process how true is that think about this Daniel was taken with the first deportation. Jeremiah chose to stay with the people of the land. They were contemporaries of each other. They lived during the same time. So Daniel is in Babylon. Jeremiah is in Judah. Jeremiah's book is written, makes its way to Daniel in Babylon. And it is immediately, it is immediately accepted as being the word of the Lord from the prophet Jeremiah. I mean, how fast can you say? Well, you don't really say anything. You just It was that fast. The ink wasn't even dry, as we might say. There was no long evolutionary process of this at all. It was something that was immediately accepted by the people of God because it was written by a prophet of God. No vote, no council, no any of that stuff. And so while you've got people like Bonnie Urbe and others that are going to say that it went through these votes and these councils and all that stuff, the biblical evidence simply does not support that. The biblical evidence shows that the people of God accepted the books immediately because they were written by recognized prophets. Of God. So that last category then is one that we should easily be able to explain. How did the book of Psalms uh, get accepted? Well, because they were written by Moses, duh. No question why the writings of Moses would be accepted. David, can we say Goliath? <laughs> can we say all the things that David did? Uh, Asaph, I mentioned last night that Jesus tells us that Asaph was a prophet in Matthew 13. Uh, The writings of Solomon, well, because he was given divine wisdom uh, by God. So that's how these writings were accepted. Lamentations, because Jeremiah was recognized as a prophet. 
in 2 Chronicles 35, he was. And we just looked at another one in uh, Daniel <clears throat> chapter 9. Uh, Daniel was recognized as a prophet by his contemporaries. All right, Ezekiel was a contemporary of Daniel and of Jeremiah. And in Ezekiel's book, twice in chapter 14, he refers to Daniel as uh, a prophet, a man of God. So the same principles of canonicity were enforced with the other writings. All right, time out. Say, Denny, I don't... I think you lost me with that terminology. What principle of canonicity are you talking about? The idea of a book became a part of the canon because it was written by a recognized prophet of God. So what book do you want to talk about in the Old Testament? That same principle applies to all 39 books. It doesn't matter from Genesis to Malachi that same principle, those books made it into the Bible canon because they were written by recognized prophets of God. But there's more evidence to support this. The close of the Old Testament canon and what uh, I refer to as the silence of the prophets. Did you know that we went through about a 400-year period of time where there was no revelations from God. No one was inspired during that period from the last uh, Old Testament prophetic book, Malachi, until the time of the New Testament. So the silence of the prophets. The prophets were silenced during that time. What evidence do we have of this? Well, there's a writing during the intertestamental time by the name of 1 Maccabees. <clears throat> Chapter 4, verse 46 says, They pulled down the altar and laid down stones in the mountain of the house in a convenient place until a prophet should come and decide concerning them. All right, that's 1 Maccabees written about 125 uh, B.C. <clears throat> Later on in the book, and there was great tribulation in Israel, such as not since the time that a prophet had appeared to them. All right, you might look at that and think, well, a prophet just hasn't made it through town yet, but there'll be one that will arrive shortly. But when you keep reading, it says, And the Jews were well pleased that Simon should be their leader forever until a faithful prophet should come. All right, so what we learn then, there were no prophets, faithful prophets. Now, there were men that claimed to be prophets, but there were no faithful prophets. And so they're waiting for there to be a prophet. So this is one example of some of these intertestamental writings. They knew they didn't have any prophets of God. They knew they did. They could, they could tell the difference between the fakes and the real prophets of God. And then a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus that lived in the first century had this to say. From Artaxerxes to our own time. Artaxerxes, king of Persia, date about four. 450 B.C. All right, so from 400 until the first century A.D., the complete history has been written. All right, all of the things the Jews went through in that 400-year period of time has been written down. Notice what Josephus says. But has not been deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier records. Now we're talking about things written before 
400 B.C. Why, Josephus, are they not deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier records? Because of the failure of the exact succession of the prophets. Wow. Seriously? Yeah. So, yeah, there have been lots of writings, and we just read one, 1 Maccabees. Jews knew that 1 Maccabees wasn't written by an inspired man. And the people of God never accepted it as such. They accepted it as a good historical account of what happened, but they never, ever thought that it, its or, uh, origin was from God. All right, so the failure, notice that he says, the failure of the exact succession of the prophets. So Malachi, that was it. And then you have this period of silence. He goes on to say, For although such long ages have now passed, no one has ventured either to add or to remove or to alter a syllable. That's how much they respected those earlier records that they believed were inspired. They're not going to touch them. They're not even going to alter a syllable because they believed it was the very word of God. Word for word. We talked about that last night. All right, so what books is he talking about? Well, fortunately, he tells us. He says, our books, those which are justly accredited, are but two and twenty and contain the record of all time. Of these, five are the books of Moses, comprising the laws and the traditional history from the birth of man down to the death of the lawgiver, from the death of Moses until Artaxerxes, who succeeded Xerxes as the king of Persia. The prophet subsequent to Moses wrote the history of the events of their own times in 13 books. The remaining four contain hymns to God and precepts for the conduct of human life. So fortunately, we're not left to guess what uh, Josephus believes and the Jews during the time of Jesus believed were the accepted, accredited books. But you might say, uh, Danny, I think we've got a problem. He says there are 22. And my Bible has 39. So I think we're, uh, we're missing uh, something here. Let's talk about the Hebrew Old Testament. As we mentioned, it's broken down into the following three sections, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Did you know that in the Hebrew Bible, Judges and Ruth are one book? There's not a first and second Samuel, but it's just one book. There's not a first and second Kings, but it's just one book. That Jeremiah and Lamentations in the Hebrew Bible is one book. And that the 12 minor prophets is in just one book that's called the 12. And that Ezra and Nehemiah is one book. And that there's not a first and second Chronicles, but just the book of Chronicles. Does anybody want to take a wild guess that when you look at this, how many books are we going to end up with? 22. 22 books. Exactly what Josephus said uh, was the number of accredited, recognized books, what they considered inspired books of the Old Testament. So now we know what the Jews of the first century believed was uh, their Bible books. And you know what? There still hasn't been a, a vote 
there still hasn't been a council that has decided on these books. Now, there may be some here this morning that uh, have familiarity with uh, the, the Catholic Church, the Catholic Bible. Um, for many years, my father uh, was a Catholic, and the Catholic Bible has 11 more books in its Old Testament uh, than our Bibles do. All right, Those books are something that we need to talk about, but Jesus did not include those books in what he considered to be the inspired writing of God. If I asked you, what books do you accept? And you said, I accept the books from Genesis to Revelation. I'd know exactly what you meant. You, you're talking about the 66 books, and that's all. In this interesting passage in Luke chapter 11, verses 50 and 51, Jesus says, all the blood of the prophets from the death of Abel, well... Where do we read about the death of Abel? That's in Genesis, the first book of the Hebrew Bible. And then he says, to the death of Zechariah. Well, where do we read about the death of Zechariah? That's in 2 Chronicles, the last book in the Hebrew Bible. All right, so Jesus said, all the blood of the prophets from Abel to Zechariah, from Genesis to Chronicles, in that remarkable statement, Jesus is accepting the entire Hebrew canon. He's putting his stamp of approval on all 39 books, from the first one to the last one. All right, so what about these books that are found in the Catholic Bible? Uh, they're known as the Apocrypha. The, um, uh, the Catholic Church does not prefer that name. They prefer the Deuterocanonical books. And... As you can see, here is the names of those books. And I've got asterisks by three of them. Uh, you can see 3rd Esdras and 4th Esdras, and then on the right side, the prayer of Manasseh. Um, that's because the Catholic Church did not accept those books, but they accepted 11 of the others. All right, so what about those books? And... Are those books uh, something that should be a, a part of uh, our Bibles? Here are reasons why those books should be rejected. First of all, not a single New Testament quotation is taken from any of those 14 books. No proof that the Greek Old Testament, what's known as the Septuagint, uh, contained it. No church council favored them in the first four centuries. Many individuals vehemently opposed them, like Athanasius and Cyril, Jerusalem and Origen and Jerome. The Catholic Council of Trent, 1546, get that, was the first official proclamation on the Apocrypha. The Catholic Church didn't get until 1546 before they said, you either accept the Apocrypha or you're going to be anathema from the church. Wow. That's a long time that the Apocrypha was not officially accepted by even Catholicism. Most were written in the intertestamental period, all right? What's the big deal about that? Well, we just talked about it. Prophecy was believed to have ceased during that period of time. 
It doesn't pass the test of canonicity. Okay, uh, you should get this by now. You know what this means. But they were not written by recognized prophets of God. And so the people never accepted them as being inspired writings. They never accepted them as being inspired writings. So that's why these books should not become uh, are not a part of the inspired canon of Scripture. Because of time, we can't talk about this, but every single one of these has an amazing, very interesting story, fascinating information that undeniably supports the 39 books that we have in our Bibles. We've got the right books. We have every reason to have utmost confidence that we confidence that we have the right books, the right 39 books in our Bible, no more and no less. So what about the New Testament canon? The New Testament is typically divided up like the Old Testament was divided up, Gospels, Acts, Epistles, and Apocalypse. But the principle is the same, which is why we can go through this rather quickly, that the books of the Bible was based upon apostolic authority. And here are many passages that uh, we could look at, we won't, but uh, they're all supporting the same basic idea. And that is that the writers of the books of the New Testament, those 27 books, were recognized prophets or apostles. One of those two. Remember last night, uh, we talked about how there's only two possibilities of the writers of the books of the New Testament. They're either apostles or Uh, They were prophets. There are some very interesting verses, though, that we'll look at. All right, here is the Greek of 1 Timothy 5.18. It's pronounced, Oxios egrates du misthu atu. Worthy is the labor of his wages. All right, that's 1 Timothy 5.18. Luke 10, 7, Oxios garhe gratis to misthu atu. When you compare the two, the only difference is that Paul did not include the introductory word for, boy, our font went crazy on that one. The word gar is the word for. And here it's being used to introduce what is a quotation. You say, all right, I'm not quite sure that I'm following what what you're saying here. Remember what we learned about the word graphe, the word scripture? It is a word that is only used for inspired writings, sacred writings. And so Paul is unquestionably, undoubtedly, without dispute, quoting Luke 10 and verse 7. And he's calling it scripture. Now I don't know the the dating of New Testament books is an inexact science, and Mike knows a lot more about that than I do. But uh, the distance between when the Gospel of Luke was written and when First Timothy was written is probably no more than fifteen years. But In that span of time, Luke's gospel is written and Paul 
a recognized apostle of Jesus Christ, is quoting from Luke, who was not an apostle but was a prophet. He's quoting from Luke and he's calling what Luke is writing, graphe, scripture. That's a very short span of time, but it shows that this idea of this long evolutionary process is just not true. Luke wrote his gospel. The people of God accepted it like that. And Paul confirms that that was the case by quoting Luke a few years later and calling what Luke wrote Scripture. Even the writings of Paul was recognized as Scripture by Peter. Look at this text, 2 Peter three fifteen and 16. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. Notice that. Paul wrote with the wisdom that God gave him. That's why Paul was accepted, one of the reasons. He writes in the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. All right, notice, Paul wrote. Peter confirms that. Not only that, but this text says that he wrote letters, plural. Then note that he calls what Paul wrote scriptures. And he notes that there are other scriptures in addition to what Paul wrote. All right. By the time we get to 2 Peter, which was probably written in the late 60s, nearly every book of the New Testament has already been written with the exception of what the Apostle John wrote. So you might say Jude slides in slightly after this, maybe not. But my point is that probably out of the 27 books of the New Testament, there were 22, 23 that were already written by this time, and Peter knows about all of them. And the writings of Paul, 13 books uh, that came from uh, the Apostle, uh, were already accepted. So how did the New Testament library come together? I believe this passage in Colossians 4.16 gives us a hint. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read to the church of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. A lot of people say, aha, here we have a problem because there's not a letter to the Laodiceans that we know about. Notice that Paul is saying it's a letter that is from Laodicea. He is not referring to a letter that was written to the church at Laodicea, just that there is a book that is presently with the church there in Laodicea. What we have found is that the libraries of the New Testament books were found in places all the way up in Rome, all the way down into Egypt, and in places in between. How did that happen? Let's suppose that the West Side Church received a letter from Paul, and Paul had told us, we want you to send uh, this letter on to uh, the brethren in Odessa. You're not going to send the original You're going to make a copy of the original and send the copy to Odessa. Well, and guess what Odessa's going to do? They're going to make a copy and send it on down the road. Meanwhile, as the books circulate and they come through one after the other, 
We're making copies, and our library is growing. That's why Alexandria, Egypt, in Rome, in Antioch, and in places in between, you've got the collection of all 27 New Testament books. We're probably referring to the Ephesian letter, I believe, in this passage. Additional evidence on the acceptance of the New Testament canon comes from the quotations of the church fathers. The church fathers, as early as the 2nd century, are making reference to the 27 books of the New Testament. This is a chart that's in a book written by Geisler and Nix called A General Introduction to the Bible. And they've got all 27 books of the New Testament there on top. And then they have some of the early Christian writers and either they're quoting or they are making uh, references to various Bible books. The 27 books of the New Testament were those that were already known by the people of God in the second century. But you might say, Denny, I, I know that I've read some stuff that doesn't support that. That there were some fourth century councils that got together and discussed canonicity. And you would be correct. The fourth century status, according to Eusebius of Caesarea, he's got books that were recognized, books that were disputed, and then books that were rejected. And you go, all right, that's exactly what uh, I thought I had read. But I want you to, to think about it this way. There were some people that disputed like James and Jude. But those books were already accepted. They were already in the canon. So basically you've got some guy says, oh, look, I've got a problem with Second Peter. Okay, acknowledge, now sit down, be quiet. It didn't change anything. Just because some guy said, I got a problem, it didn't change the fact that these books were already in. And those books that were rejected had already been rejected for a long time. The canon is that which was already sealed, recognized by the people of God. Later, pseudographs, uh, heretics were never accepted because they knew that they weren't written by recognized apostles or prophets. The Da Vinci Code, I don't know if you've read any of the books of Dan Brown, but in this book he's uh, fostering a lot of things that are simply not true. He says there are 75 Gospels that were in circulation and they had to narrow it down to four, and they only did that for uh, political reasons, do doctrinal reasons. Uh, that's not true. A um, lot of inaccuracies in his book. Uh, but anyway, he gives credit to the Council of Nicaea that took place in 325, and the Council of Carthage that took place about 50 years later as establishing the, the canon, but that's simply not what the evidence shows. And we got other stuff like the Gospel of Judas, um, the lost tomb of Jesus that attacks biblical credibility. The canon of Scripture, though, is one that basically falls into <coughs> this discussion. When did people recognize a writing as authoritative? Here's what some scholars have said, none of which is accurate. It's old. Well, better put it in the Bible then. <laughs> if it's old... That's not going to work. 
It's written in Hebrew. Oh, doesn't it need to be in the Bible then if it was written in Hebrew? Uh, it agrees with the Torah, the five books of law. Now, that's not good enough. It has religious value. That's not good enough either. So we reject those. The correct view, it's valuable because it came from God. That's where it originated. And it's canonical. It becomes a part of the canon of Scripture because it's inspired. And the testimony of Christ certainly uh, fits into that. All right, so three steps as we wrap this up. And I know I've already gone a little bit long on this one. No surprise there, right? Inspired of God, recognized by the men of God, collected and preserved by the people of God. That's how the 66 books became a part of the canon. Those three steps. God inspired, God's people recognized, and they collected and preserved these books. So we've got the right books. All right, uh, Mike, we're going to take a break or what are we going to do?